0: You can be seated. Could it really be true? I mean, did Jesus really rise from the dead this morning when you came in? Maybe you've had it said before you got here, but we heard that phrase. uh, When someone says, he is risen, then tradition in the church has been. When you hear someone say that, the response is, he is risen indeed. And that's something that developed over centuries in the church because of the resurrection, but that is not How it was on that first morning when the disciples were afraid because they had seen Christ crucified, they knew what the Roman government was doing, and they were fearful for their lives. And when the first report came in by some women who had seen him and said, He has risen, their response is, That's impossible. Their their response was, no way. How can that be? We saw him die. We saw the condition his body was in. We put him in the tomb. So, today, what I would like to do is to share with you reasons to believe and to answer the question did he really? Did he really rise from the dead? How can we know? Because even if his disciples back then had a hard time believing it until they saw him resurrected, And they saw him alive. Then they believed, but they had the opportunity to see him. How about us today? Because we're not able to see his body here among us. We're not able to see him on the earth. So how do we know that Jesus really did rise from the grave? Well, the Apostle Paul addresses this question in one of the letters that he wrote to a group of believers in Corinth, and you need to realize that what I'm about to read to you was written by a man who not only was a skeptic of Jesus Christ and a skeptic of the resurrection, he was a hater. He hated the church, he felt threatened by Christ and by the Christians, and he was actually happy when Christ died. In fact, in some of the early followers of Jesus, he... um, held the, the cloaks of those that were stoning some of Jesus' closest disciples, Stephen, one of those. So what was it that changed this man who was not only a skeptic, but an actual hater of the church and a hater of Christ into someone who is now a staunch believer and an actually a defender of the faith in Christ. Well, it is the power of the resurrection. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes in First Corinthians 15, verse 12. So again, this is written by a man who had formerly been an unbeliever in Christ. He says this in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And I love the honesty of this. Listen to this. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, it's useless. It's a waste of time. So, all right, we're going to close in a prayer. Everybody go home. That's it. I mean, seriously, what are we doing here today? I love the honesty of this because it's saying if this isn't true, then this is all a waste of time. We're just, we're fooling ourselves. To me, that lends credibility to this whole thing. So this is part of the evidence of the resurrection of Christ. He goes on and he writes, and then he says this about himself and about others who teach about Christ and the resurrection. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ Whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Think about that. Everybody, no matter what religion, likes to talk about faith. But Paul's saying, you know what, if this isn't true, then it's futile. It's futile to have faith in anything. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, your faith is futile. And then he says this, a theological statement, and you are still in your sins. In other words, up until the time that Christ died and rose again, the message was, no matter what religion... We somehow have to be good enough to make it into heaven. We've got to live a good enough life and hopefully when destiny or whatever power is 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 supreme and over everything, when your life ends, hopefully you've done a little more good than bad and your weight in the balances and if you've done one more good deed than bad, then hey, you're in and you made it to heaven. That's called a works-based faith. And that's what all world religions teach except what we understand about what God taught the nation of Israel through the sacrificial system, which still seems to be work-based, but it was pointing the way to Jesus Christ, who is ultimately going to be the sacrifice for all the sins of the world, no matter what race, nationality, because really there's only one race. There really is. I guess they're tired of this racism stuff, this bandied about, because there is one race, the human race. We bleed the same blood, God created all of you. We're all precious to him. So we ought to be treating each other that way. But again, love isn't always just warm and fuzzy. If you're a parent, you get that. (laughs) Sometimes in love, you got to discipline and you got to call out what's wrong and what's right and there has to be an order in things. And so part of the whole gospel message and the love of God isn't just always this warm, fuzzy, anything goes and God doesn't care. He loves us enough to tell us when we're out of line. And then he says, here's what I've done to help you get back in line. And you don't have to do it on your own. I'm here to help you. That's the good news of the gospel. But Jesus Christ, that's what he came proclaiming. I am coming and I'm giving my life as a sacrifice for your sins. My righteousness for your unrighteousness. My holiness for your unholiness. This is how much I love you. And I'm going to lay it all down. I'm going to demonstrate my love for you while you're still sinners. I'm going to hang on that cross and die. But then he also said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to overcome death and I'm going to show you. So he constantly talked about the fact that though he would die, he would rise again. And he specifically said on the third day. So again, the Apostle Paul, or uh, yeah, the Apostle Paul is writing in this passage saying that theologically, even if Christ hasn't really raised from the dead, then once again, we're just still in our sins and we're trying to do the best we can. And we hope somehow when we die, there might be something better. So he goes on and he says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. And then he says this statement, which again is amazing. He is so honest. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most pitied. (laughs) I mean, can you get any more honest than that? He's basically telling everybody that's mocking and ridiculing him, you know what? If this isn't true, you all are right. You are right in making fun of us. We're a bunch of idiots. Because we're, lit, we're facing persecution and hardship and all of these things as followers of Christ. And you know what? If he didn't rise from the dead, we deserve it. You are right. We're a bunch of idiots. You can't get more honest than that. So I love it. He's like saying, bring it on. And the reason he wrote it is because he was so sure he knew. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt because he had seen Christ. He had seen him in a vision. Others had seen Christ personally risen. So what I want to do this morning for just a little bit is just like a cold case investigator would look at a crime scene that... A lot of time has passed, but you're reexamining the evidence of something that happened a long time ago and then trying to prove or to figure out, did this really happen? And that is a part of criminal uh, law, the cold cases that haven't been solved. You look at the evidence and then hopefully you can make a conclusion. That's what I'd like to do this morning. So if you got an exchange when you came in, there was a little insert sheet, and I want you to be able to take that home and look it up. If if you want to glance at it now, it's fine, but it's fine just to listen. I didn't create it just to make it follow along and fill in the blank. If you did not get one of those, we'll do our best to get it on our website or or get it to where you could download it at a a future date. Just be patient with us because I'm springing this on our our techies right now. They didn't know I was going to do that. So, if you didn't get a chance to get one when you came in today, hopefully we'll have that online and you can download it as a PDF file or something. But to be honest, the first thing that we need to understand is, can we trust what the New Testament says? See, many people look at the Bible in its entirety and especially the New Testament as just a religious document, a spiritual document. What you need to understand is actually it's not like a couple of people sat down in a room and said, we're going to write the Bible and we're going to make up this fairy tale. The Bible is a collection of historical documents that have been collected over centuries and centuries. It's writings that have been done by different people over in different situations of life over a long period of time. When it comes to the New Testament specifically, it was written by those who followed Jesus and they were making a historical record of his life. Now again, many people would say, well, they were biased. Well, they, they were just with Jesus and they were wanting to accurately record for all of us and it, it, that would follow in history, this is what happened, this is what we saw. So the question is, can we rely on the New Testament as a historical document, how accurate is it? Well, I've got a chart and I know it's really gonna be hard for you to see because I, I didn't wanna uh, complicate things with putting a bunch of charts and making it real big. But what I wanted you to see at a glance is there are many in history who wrote Uh, things for us and for future generations. We have philosophers like Plato, and we've got people like Herodotus and Pliny and uh, Aristophanes, Aristotle. And I've got some dates up here. And again, I realize it may be hard for some of you to see. I just want you to get to the main point. On this chart, it shows that of all of these people who wrote, and we have a few copies of their ancient manuscripts or portions of what they wrote, let's just take Plato Okay, Plato lived from 427 to 347 BC, but the earliest copy we have of his writings is not until 980. That is about 1,200 years from the time he wrote to where we can find a copy of any of his writings dating back that far. That's a huge gap, and there's only seven copies of Plato's writings, yet nobody... Nobody questions that somebody would have faked Plato. I mean, how many of you had philosophy class and you learn about some of the stuff that Plato wrote about? Um, Aristophanes, same thing, 450 to 385 BC, uh, approximate time span between when he actually wrote and the earliest dated manuscript copies that we have of his writings, wasn't until 900 AD, a 1200 year, uh, span, and there's only 10 copies. Of his writings, or, or Aristotle, I'm sorry, is 49 copies. The point is this: if you if you can just see it, all of those mostly are single digits till you get down to like Sophocles and then Homer. So I'm just going to focus in on Homer, and no, it's not from The Simpsons. So, <laughs> but um, he wrote the Iliad, and it's one of the most well-known ancient Greek manuscripts. So, that was 900 B.C., the earliest copy dates back to 400 B.C., it's about a 500-year span, and there actually is 643 copies of the Iliad. Now, of those 643 copies, there are 740-some-odd lines, in other words, when they compare this copy to this copy, and this manuscript to this manuscript, and where it's all saying the same thing, there is 700. And 43 or 764, some odd in that range, discrepancies in those copies. Mark, get to your point. What does this mean? Okay, now let's get to the New Testament manuscripts. First century AD, between 50 to 100 AD is when the disciples lived It's when they recorded about Christ's life. They talked to others so that others would write it down. In fact, Luke was actually a physician and he was a historian. And so he talked to many of the disciples who were there with Jesus and he documents an account for us. The book of of Luke and the New Testament book of Acts are actually historical documents. But anyway, and so there are 5,000... 600, over 5,600 manuscripts, portions of the scriptures or copies of the scriptures, and they all date back to a period of less than 100 years from the time they were originally written. This totally blows away any other historical evidence or documents that we have. I said all that just to say this. I want you to be assured that the New Testament that you read today is what was written historically by the followers of Jesus. Think about it. I'm not going to ask you how many many of you here are 80 years old or older. So don't raise your hand. But think about it. In your own lifetime, if you're 80 years old, you can remember back when you were a child and whether it was something in one of the world wars or something that happened that impacted your life and over your lifetime you've read about those things, you're gonna know what was fake and what was real. You're gonna know what was made up and and what actually happened because you lived in that span. Now think about it. These manuscripts that we have can date back to the second century, about 130 AD on. So we're talking about many of these manuscripts we have today where people that were living that could absolutely say, yeah, this is true or yeah, this isn't true. I know I'm taking a little bit extra time with this this morning, but hopefully this will put your mind at ease. For those that question, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have kind of mocked Christianity or the Bible? And I remember growing up all the time in high school and certainly in college, you can't trust what the Bible says. Haven't you ever played the game Telephone you know where one person says something then another and they try to repeat it and by the time you get to the end it's it's totally changed the meaning Well, that's not how we have the scriptures today. We have archaeologists. We actually have scientific-minded people, and they date these manuscripts, and they study. And so, it's not this was said, then this person hears, and they go down the line. It's like as it goes down the line, they have an opportunity to go back to the first person and go, is this what you really said? And when it gets to the 10th person, they go back to the first person, is this what you really said? That's what these manuscripts are doing for us. You can trust the scripture. Can I get an amen? Amen. So now that we've established that, the New Testament, we can trust the historical written record. Now we need to look at what it says about the resurrection of Jesus. And then also we need to understand, I'm going to even take it one step further. Let's just discount the New Testament for a moment in the New Testament writings. Is there any other historical documents that reference Christianity or the resurrection? And the answer to that is yes. There are other people, historians, and others who wrote uh, documents that refer to Christians and even the resurrection. One of the most famous, I'm just going to mention one today, is Flavius Josephus. He lived during 37 AD to 100 AD. He was an advisor to three Roman emperors, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. And while he was serving as a historian during that reign, here's what he writes. He mentions this in book 18 of his work called Antiquities, book 18, chapter 3, paragraph 3. Now there was about this time, Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. Hmm. Wonder what that could be referring to. Probably some miracles, because he's like, this guy, they called him a man, but if you could really call him a man, because he did a lot of wonderful things. Then it goes on, and Josephus writes, a teacher of such... As, as men received the truth with pleasure, he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. That, those are people that aren't Jewish. He was Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, listen to this, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day. Folks, this is not in the scripture. This is by a historian outside of that. As the divine prophets had foretold, these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. There you go. And I could give you other evidence outside the Bible. So now we've got not only historical evidence that's recorded for us in the Scripture that's been preserved through the church, but now we've got evidence outside the Bible. Well, the record in the Bible also shows that it's authentic in this. There are some who say, well, you know, the Bible is full of contradictions. And even in the New Testament, the resurrection account, you you, you read those accounts and they don't match up just exactly right. Here is a principle of cold case investigators. When they look at written testimony or recorded testimony, if they see every single witness saying exactly the same thing, you know what they're going to think? Collusion. (laughs) Oh, I just had to throw that in there. I know you're sick of it. (laughs) But you see, this whole thing's been around way before our current mess. But that's exactly a cold case investigator. If they saw every eyewitness saying exactly the same thing, they'd say, "Well, it's obvious they got together and they got their stories together and they wanted to make sure that you know this and that actually becomes a thing to discredit it. So the fact that there are some discrepancies in the new written or in the New Testament written about the resurrection, that actually lends validity to it because nobody tried to go in and mess with it. They said, "Here it is. here's what they wrote. We don 't quite understand. Let me ask you this: How many of you? Remember, uh, on 9-11, it was a terrible time, but when the Twin Towers came down. Most of us, if you were alive and aware during that time, you remember exactly where you were when you heard the news about it, and you remember seeing it. But if I would ask you right now, well, which tower came down first, and which tower came down second, and how many planes were involved? Some basic questions like that, I'm sure I would get different answers. It's not that you're not telling something that's true. As you recollect it from your perspective, you're just simply saying, well, this is what I remember and here's my perspective. But when you would take all of that evidence, you can piece it together to get the main facts. That's what we have in the scriptures about the resurrection of Jesus. Different perspectives, different people saying what they experienced on that day and when you begin to piece it together, yeah, you might find a few little things that seem contradictory, but it's not that one's right and one's wrong. Again, it was, there was so much happening on that morning of the resurrection and the and the disciples and the women that were there. You could see how this would happen. So... Let me just read from you the gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 1. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Here again, this shows that this is true. It didn't say they saw the tomb empty and they immediately skipped back and said, he's risen. <laughs> They did like we would do. They're like, oh my gosh, somebody had to take the Bible because we know he's dead. We saw him. We put him in here. So they were skeptical. And they assumed that someone had taken his body. So Peter and the other disciples started to the tomb when they heard this. Uh, Both were running, the scripture says, but the other disciple um, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. These are the strips of cloth that was used to wrap the body of Jesus. Again, some of his followers, when they took his body down, they wrapped his body in in strips of cloth, put a few spices in there until they could go back and properly, after the Sabbath day was over, they were going to go back and properly give him a burial. But they did all this temporarily, put him in the tomb, wrapped a a cloth around his head. So, when the disciples get there, this is what puzzled them. They're like, wait a second, if somebody stole the body Why would they have taken the time to take all the strips off of his body and the thing that was wrapped around his head and and lay it there? I mean, if somebody was going to steal it, it'd be in, out, take the body, take everything. And so, this was something that mystified Peter and John. In fact, it says, I'll I'll go on and read here. Right then, he saw enough. He's like, this is impossible. You know, Jesus said he was going to rise again, and I don't get it, but I know somebody didn't steal his body because there's no way that they would have done that. And the way these linens are laying here, something miraculous has happened. He's not here. His body's gone, but the stuff we wrapped him in is laying right there. So, he believed based on that. Then, uh, as, as we move on. So, first of all, here's one of the theories, the stolen body. Um, So again, just to recap, how you can refute anybody that says, well, somebody just came along and took the body of Christ and that's why everybody thought he was risen. Well, number one, the grave clothes, it convinced the disciples. Of course, more than that, you're going to hear in a minute. Here's another thing, the Roman guards. The Roman guards were placed there for the very fact that they were afraid that disciples were going to steal the body. Contrary to what some people believe, they weren't afraid that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. And they so they sealed the tomb to keep him in there. No, no, no. The whole thing is they posted guards that they sealed the tomb because they didn't want the body to be stolen. And they were going to make darn sure that it didn't happen. And yet it happened. So the Roman guards, the fact that they were stationed there shows that this was an actual resurrection. And you're going to hear more about that in a moment. And then again, the disciples were fearful. Why would they have stolen the body? The Romans wouldn't have stolen the body because, for for crying out loud, they didn't want this whole resurrection thing to go on. So, it would have been silly for them to steal the body because they were concerned about this rising Christian movement. And in fact, this is another thing that refutes a lot of these theories. All the Romans had to do would be to get the body of Jesus bring him out again in the public square, hold him up for everybody on display and go, here's your savior. You think he's risen? No, here he is, he's dead. And put him back in the tomb. And that would have been the end of it. But you see, that is not what happened. So we get to the second theory then, and a lot of these theories over the years have come by people who don't actually read the accounts or somehow they think the accounts aren't credible. So they say, well, the the women, you know, they were grieving and it was early in the morning, it was dark, so they just went to the wrong tomb. That's all it was. They went to the wrong tomb and they went to one that was empty and they supposed that Jesus was risen. Come on. Again, if they had gone to the wrong tomb, the sun went up. Other disciples and people would go, hey, ladies, you went to the wrong tomb. Here's where Jesus is. Here's his body. Again, that didn't happen. So that's kind of a ridiculous claim. But I want to share with you again what the scripture says in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. So now we get another picture here, more full picture. There was also someone with Mary Magdalene. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards, the Roman guards, the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. You see, the guards didn't pass out. They were witnesses. How do you think that we know about this angel? Because trust me, they were talking with their other soldiers about this because they were there. They're like, you guys aren't going to believe this. I mean, we were, we were sealing the tomb because we didn't want people to steal anything. And then there was this earthquake and there's stone rolls away and there's an angel that sat on it and we couldn't do a thing about it. We were helpless. We were powerless. They were like dead men. It doesn't mean they passed out and were unconscious. They just, they couldn't move. They just, they were in awe. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly, tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb and yet filled with joy ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly, now here's the first appearance, Jesus met them. Greetings, Jesus said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And they couldn't believe it; they just fell down at his feet. Then Jesus said to them, "Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me." While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that that had happened. Guys, you're not going to believe this, but this this happened. We saw it. When the chief priests had met with the elders, they devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you're to say his disciples came during the night and stole away his body while we were asleep. And if this report gets back to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. You know why they said that? Because you know what the punishment for a Roman guard is that lets a prisoner free? Death. The Roman soldier's life for the life of the one that escaped. Now imagine how embarrassing it would be to say, we let a dead guy escape. They definitely were going to be put to death. But the chief priest, because they, again, this was real collusion, not fake stuff was going on. And so the chief priest said, we're going to give you a bunch of money. We don't want this to get out. So here's your payoff. And if we know that the governor is going to want to have you guys put to death, but we're in with him too, we'll we'll put in a good word. We're going to pay them off too, and, and we'll get you off. So there was this whole plan going on. It says, if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So, the soldiers took the money, did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So, here's where some of these theories started about uh, that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Then there was the swoon theory. That is that Jesus didn't really die. Uh, that somehow he was near death. When they put him in the tomb, his body had a chance to recover in the cool of the tomb, and he came out, and so then everybody thought he resurrected from the dead when really he was just kind of resuscitated and got better. Give me a break. Jesus was lashed 49 times or 39 times with a cat of nine tails. That's a whip that has several uh, strips of leather on it. On the end of the leather is sharp metal bone uh, pieces. So when he was lashed 39 times and it was hitting his back, the soldiers ripped that down. It literally was stripping flesh off, off of his back, revealing muscle and veins and arteries. I mean, his back looked like hamburger meat. And then on top of that, the beatings that he took, being nailed to the cross, as a person is hanging on the cross, physicians have studied this, when you're nailed to the cross with no ropes on your arms, especially, um, the only way that you can catch your breath, because the weight of your body hanging down actually cuts off your lungs and you can't breathe. So you have to shove up with your feet, get a breath, and then you let yourself down. And that is the long, agonizing process that a person being crucified goes through. And so... The Jewish people didn't want those people hanging on the cross because it was getting ready to be the Sabbath, their holy day. And so they told the Roman soldiers, hey, speed the process up, go ahead and break these guys' legs, and so that way they'll hurry up and suffocate and die so we can get them off the cross and we can observe our holy day. Really compassionate people, right? But hey, don't point fingers because I know some of you, you're probably already going, when's this going to be over so we can get out of here? (laughs) But anyway... So, here's what happened. The Romans, who were experts in crucifixion, they broke the legs of the two on either side of Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs because they saw he was already dead. So, that's one of the ways that we know for sure without a fact that he was dead. If that weren't enough, the Scripture says… And I'll just read it here. Since it was the day of preparation, so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So if the, if the fact of the broken legs wasn't enough, Remember, these are experts in crucifixion and death, execution. Don't think for a minute that that Roman with the spear just kind of went to see if Jesus was going to flinch or anything. You know what he did? He took that spear and he went, Ugh! and he thrust it right up through Jesus' side, through the ribcage, through his lungs, into his heart. Because that way he was like, I'm going to make sure you're dead, buddy. And that's what he did. And then when he pulled the spear out, it said that blood and water both poured out of Jesus' side. Again, physicians that study crucifixion and what happens to your body under that stress, and I'm no physician, so I hope I don't say this wrong, but I think there's something like called a pericardial sac or something, a thing around your heart and your lungs. Anyway, it was showing that all of the fluid in his body was filling up and that. and when the soldier pierced his side and came out, then all of that fluid and, and blood came out. He was gone. And they took that dead body down and they put it in the tomb. So this whole thing that he wasn't really dead, he just kind of swooned and somehow came back to life. He would have had to have rolled the stone away, overpowered Roman guards, and then somehow come back to his disciples and look like he was just all well and good. Then somebody came up with the idea, well, maybe Jesus had a, a twin. <laughs> maybe he was just an imposter. You know, he, had, he had a twin brother that we just don't know about, and so Jesus died, and it wasn't really him. It was his twin brother that appeared to everybody and walked around. Baloney. Again, there's no documentation at all that Jesus ever had a twin. Again, if he had one and they thought it was him, uh, the disciples would have known it. The Romans, again, could have just taken the real body of Jesus out, said, there's this twin, here's the real guy, he's gone, get over it. That theory is ridiculous. And then the hallucination theory, and we're coming near the end here. There's a lot to go over, but I want to just hit the highlights here. The hallucination theory is while well, the apostles were just so grieved and they so wanted Jesus to be alive that they imagined that he was alive when he, when he really wasn't. They just hallucinated it. If there had only been one or two people say that they saw Jesus alive, that would be a, a viable theory. But there are countless documented cases of more than one person at the same time seeing Jesus, men, women, people who were believers, people who were skeptics, people who were even unbelievers, became believers because they saw Jesus resurrected. So that blows that theory out of the water. And just let me ask you this, in fact, the Apostle Paul, again, this skeptic, writes this in 1 Corinthians 15 um, 5, he talks about some of these appearances. He says Jesus was seen by Peter and then by the 12. He was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have, have died. Now, at the time of that writing, there were still people alive who had seen Jesus collectively as a group. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have had a dream? I think most of us probably have had a dream or we can remember having a dream but I can't have your dream and you can't have my dream, right? We don't, when you fall asleep and you wake up and you talk about a dream, it's not like, you know, that's the weirdest thing. I had the exact same dream at the exact same time. This doesn't happen. So this hallucination theory is the same thing. People don't hallucinate the same thing at the same time. So that blows that out of the water. And then finally, some say, well, okay, okay. Somehow it was a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't really his body, but it was just like his spirit, his ghost that everyone saw. Well, let me give you a scripture. There was more, again, more than one account of this, but Luke chapter 24, verse 36. As the disciples were talking about all these things, that they had seen Jesus, they were still pondering over it, they were mystified by it. It says, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. They were startled and frightened and thought they had seen a spirit. Right there it is. They're like, this can't be really him in the body. This must be his ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? I believe he's saying the same thing to you and I today. If you're the least bit skeptical, if you're the least bit discouraged, I pray that God's using this message today that Jesus is saying to you, why are you troubled? I'm, I'm risen. I'm real. You can trust me. And so this is what he spoke to them. See my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me, see, a spirit does not have flesh and bone as I have. Interesting, he didn't mention blood because his blood had already all been poured out. But his resurrected body had flesh and bone. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. This was no ghost, no spiritual resurrection, a true bodily resurrection. We also have, of course, documented the rapid spread of Christianity and the church that started right there in the midst of where Jesus was crucified. The most fiercest opposition is where the church grew, and within a hundred years, it spread amazing. This is evidence, again, this is historical evidence that you can look at and say something had to happen to turn these fearful disciples into bold witnesses that would literally begin to transform the world with this message of Christ. Only the resurrection, the true resurrection of Jesus would do this. People will die for what they believe is true but isn't. Like they think it's true but it's not. But if the disciples made all this up, they're not going to die for something they know is a lie. That'd be just ridiculous. Nobody does that. These fearful disciples were willing to die because they had seen their risen Lord. They knew what was beyond death. And they're like, okay, take me out because I've seen my Lord risen. I know what is after this and I'm not afraid. Only the resurrection of Christ could change their minds. And that's the hope that we have today. You see, we have reasons to believe in the resurrection. That's what I want to encourage you with today. Our faith is not based on some fairy tale or myth or cleverly divine scheme or designed scheme. It is based on fact. The fact and the historical evidence of Jesus, who came into this world, the Son of God, who gave his life on the cross, documented historically for us, not only in the Bible, but outside the Bible, and then rose again and conquered death and offers his Holy Spirit presence to us now, because he ascended bodily back up into heaven. And here's the rest of the story, folks. He is coming back. In my prayer this morning, I just felt led. It's like the Lord just really impressed on my spirit, as I say, when Jesus was hanging on the cross... And those people were walking by, and they were mocking him. If you're really the Savior, why don't you come down off the cross, save yourself. That'll show you're really the Savior. (laughs) And then even in his suffering and agony, he was thinking, I'm going to do you one better. Sure, I could come off the cross, but I'm going to go ahead and die, and then I'm coming back. (laughs) I'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) And on the third day, he rose from the dead. Now, let's magnify this forward, because we're still in the midst of this story. You see, Jesus bodily ascended up into heaven, and he told his disciples, I'll be back. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm coming back again. And here's the thing, folks. Hear me on this. Today, people will mock us, and they will deride us, and they will say, you're foolish for believing this. And Jesus is saying, remember me on the cross when they mocked me and I didn't come down? I'm coming back. So don't let their derision and their mocking bother you because I'm going to do them one better. I'm coming back and I'm going to set up my kingdom and then we'll see who's rejoicing and who's not. So today is the day of the salvation. I want to conclude with this. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean for you personally? Because that's really what it comes down to. I could spout facts and figures all day. That doesn't really stir our heart too much but I want you to understand the resurrection of Jesus has a direct impact in your life and my life. Here's what it means. First of all, what does it mean for our past? If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, and it is, it means that your past can be forgiven. No matter what shame or uh, tragedy or thing in your life that you're suffering from, God says, I love you. I love you anyway, regardless of your past, and I'm offering you forgiveness and grace Listen to what the scripture says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. It says this, he, God, has forgiven all our sins and canceled every debt we owe. That's talking about a spiritual debt to a holy and righteous God. He's canceled every debt we owe. Christ has done away with it by nailing it to the cross. When Christ hung on the cross, he was saying, I'm making the payment. But here's the thing. The resurrection of Jesus was the receipt. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I don't like being in debt. And like if I get a bill about something, man, I want to pay it and get it done so I can get on, right? And I don't want that debt hanging over my head. And so when I pay a bill, whether it's my phone bill or a utility bill or a house payment or whatever, I'm just nerdy enough that when I pay it, I make sure I get a receipt. Whether, even if it's electronic, I'll save an electronic receipt. Because I don't want them coming back later saying, you didn't pay your bill. And I can say, yes, I did. (laughs) I've got the receipt right here. I've got the proof. Well, that's what Christ on the cross and the resurrection is for us. It's It's our receipt. It's our proof that the price has been paid. But you do need to receive Christ to get the receipt. Romans 4.24 says this, Jesus Christ was delivered over to death for our sins, but he was raised to life for our justification. There it is. His resurrection means that the debt has been paid. So what does it mean? What does the resurrection mean for our present? Well, it means that you can have purpose now in your life, new purpose and power that you didn't have previously because now the Spirit of Christ, the risen Lord, can be in your spirit helping you, strengthening you. It's not that you become like a superhero or those kind of things. It's talking about spiritual strength to get through anything and to face life and to know that there is hope beyond this life. The Apostle Paul writes this in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What he was saying there is, I've been through beatings and suffering for my faith. I know how to live in good times and in hard times, but I've learned through it all. Christ gives me a strength, and I can can get through it because of Jesus. I like the way this translation words it, I'm ready for anything through the strength of Christ who lives in me. What are you going through today that's really hard? Is it a health issue? Is it the death of a loved one? Is it a financial crisis? In Christ, with his spirit in you, he's going to get you through it. He will give you a power that you don't have in and of yourself. And then finally, what does the resurrection mean for our future? It means our future is secure. You're going to die one day. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. Christ died, but he rose again to offer us hope. Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he couldn't say that if he hadn't conquered death. So I want to close with this scripture. Where do you stand? And this really brings it down to this crux. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, it says this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's how important belief in the resurrection is. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A lot of you know that verse. You will be saved. That's it. So, you've got to not only profess that you believe in Jesus, you've got to really believe that he is the Son of God, he died for your sins, and that he did conquer death. He rose on that third day. Because if you do that, then it shows that his spirit is in you, and you are saved Saved for eternity, saved from God's judgment against ungodliness and sin. And the scripture goes on and says this, For with the heart one believes and is justified. And remember, the resurrection was our justification. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Black, brown, red, yellow, white, whatever your skin color, whatever your nationality, your your culture. There is no distinction in Christ Jesus. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the good news of the resurrection. We celebrate it every day. I, at least I do, honestly. Every morning when I get up, for me, it's kind of like a resurrection. You know, the older I get, it gets harder to get out of bed. And I was like, whew. And I do. I literally every morning when I open my eyes, I say, "Thank you, Lord, for getting me through another night, and give me strength." And when my feet hit the floor, that's what I just say: "Lord, as as Your power raised Christ from the dead, just raise me up today and help me live for You." That might sound weird to you. Hey, I don't care. (laughs) It it strengthens me, and it gives me hope for the day, and it gives me purpose. And so I'm so thankful God allowed my feet to hit the floor today, and I got out of the tomb of my bed. and I'm here to share the good news of our resurrected Lord. Share that good news with others. Let this message today encourage your heart. Don't be discouraged. Um, There There is reasons to believe, and more than that, the application is awesome. Our past is forgiven. Our present is purposeful. Our future is secure in Christ. Would you stand? So what I'd like to do today, and I know there's many people either listening online or maybe here among us, and you all are intelligent people. You can pray your own prayer. But I'd just like to lead us in a prayer this morning. If this is your heart, I just encourage you to affirm in your own mind, in your soul, in your spirit, um, this prayer to God. If, if maybe today is ministered to you in a way that's really caused you to say, you know what, yeah, this is making sense. I, I believe in this now. I do believe. Then just pray this simple prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I know I've been a doubter and a skeptic. But Lord, I, I believe, I believe you are the son of God. I believe you died on the cross and I believe you came back to life, you rose again. And the most amazing thing is I'm realizing now you did it just for me. I know you did it for everybody else, but you also did it just for me. So Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. I open my life to you. I trust you now as my Savior. Help me follow you as Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and the power of your resurrection. Help me live for you. And for those of us who are here today who may be going through discouragement, I'm just going to pray this prayer for me. And if you want to join me in some way, that's fine. Jesus, thank you. I just can't even express how grateful I am for the power of the resurrection. And all the evidence that you've left us. Forgive us when we doubted. Forgive me for my unbelief at times. But thank you that you allow me to question and you allow me to doubt. But you give me reassurance through all of the clues all of the evidence that you've left not only historically like a cold case but Lord the warmth in my heart right now and in my spirit that I feel because your spirit dwells within me Lord Jesus right now in this place anyone hearing my voice open their spirit now to receive your living spirit in them Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us live for you. Empower us with the spiritual gifts that you want us to use for the work of your kingdom in this world. Help us to shine the light of your resurrected power through our lives. Forgive us when we've been complacent. Forgive us when we've been apathetic. Forgive us when we've let other things distract us from the mission that you've called us to who claim to be your followers. Thank you for your great mercy and grace and patience with us. And Lord, now we recommit our lives to you. Help us, Lord, to know what to say no to in our lives so that we can say yes to you first of all and carry out your will on earth as it is in heaven. And thank you, Lord, that you're going to return. We're going to trust you in the meantime and we'll experience your presence. But help us to, as we look back, we look ahead too. So now, Father, I just pray that you'll glorify yourself in our lives. We give you all the glory and the praise as we say in Jesus' name, amen.